Hello, welcome to Greenlit with me, the voice which belongs to Toby Earl. In each episode of Greenlit, a guest receives the thrilling news their life is to be made into a biopic, and we discuss how that story will be told. Will they star? Which moments won't make it into the adaptation? And will King Kong make an appearance? In this episode, actor and comedian Michael Fenton Stevens will plot the course of this certain blockbuster. Stevens has starred in a number of shows, including KYTV, Nighty Night, Ghosts, and Slow Horses. He's had a number one record. He's in the new series of Amazon Prime comedy Hapless. He presents the My Time Capsule podcast. And he just told me he could have Thor in a fight. Michael Fenton Stevens, welcome to Greenlit. Thank you very much for having me on. What a pleasure. I'm looking forward to discovering what my film's going to be. Me too. I've sort of thought about it, but at the same time, I think I'm the sort of person who would almost immediately change my mind. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I just wondered, uh, I know off, off uh, before we started recording, you, you told me you could have Thor, the god of thunder, in a fight. Um, <laughs> you didn't elaborate how how you would do that. Could you? How would you best him, do you feel? What would be your mode of combat? Thor, I would, I would mock his um his soft s <laughs> so i'd call him saw all the time and right. he'd say no thor and i'd say well i can't help him if you've got a speech impediment that's not right, my fault I see. you see what I i'm see. saying yes yes, yes. So, yes. well it may, it may well be thor but um <laughs> but put some cream on it that's what i'd say and he might be a thor loser uh, <laughs> indeed the yeah this, there you are you at see this, at this battle brawny but psychologically brittle undoubtedly i mean he thinks he's a god so thinks <laughs> easily brought well easily brought down well as i have no faith in gods at all uh, I, I think he could easily be shown to not be one do you think that's a running theme with deities that they have like pure omnipotence but actually psychologically they're kind of thin they they are brittle individuals well uh, um, I, how how far do you want me to go on this uh, do you want me to well, talk it's up to you the god the one god because I'm perfectly happy to go for it. I mean, I, I'm just, I, I'm just curious. I have a brother who's a born again Christian, and on many occasions, I've pointed out to him how petty God would be that by the very fact that me not believing in him would be enough to punish me for eternity with endless torture and pain. I mean, how unimportant must I be, surely, in the great scheme of things? Why would he be at all bothered? Why would he just go, okay, forget it, it doesn't matter, I don't care if you, I really don't care whether you believed in me or not, or my son, you know, it's fine, you carry on, You're, I'll just leave you dead, because that's what you thought was going to happen, and that's what you'd sort of expect to happen, so fine, I'll give you no consciousness after life. Then everybody's sorted out and we're all fine. But, uh, you know, how petty, uh, also, how petty would you be to, to actually send all those people who'd never even heard of you? to hell. <laughs> I mean, and there are, let's face it, millions and well, probably billions, billions of people who never had the opportunity to be told to be proselytized at, uh, and, uh, and therefore had no knowledge of him and therefore surely couldn't be blamed for not believing in him because they didn't know about him. These aspects of religion very much feel like the forerunners to terms and conditions fine print. Where you have you, you suddenly realise, hang on a minute, I what? And I I'd signed up to what? I'd done what? I don't understand. I know it seems so unfair that really the sins of somebody a long time ago who decided to put a fig leaf on would yeah. would pass down through the generations of all mankind forever. Yeah. 
And that, again, seems rather an excessive punishment for somebody who is all-powerful and all-seeing. And you mentioned fig leaves there, and that kind of got me thinking. It's never made a comeback, the fig leaf, has it, as a, t- as a piece of clothing? Apples, people still eat apples. Apple, fig leaves. Yeah. People don't wear well, fig leaves anymore. Perhaps that they? could be part of the company's uh, new branding, is that if you go to visit yes. Apple, go to the Apple store, everybody's wearing fig leaves. Now, hang on a minute. This is a hell of a marketing hell, hell of a marketing <laughs> ploy here. <laughs> I mean, although I, I, certainly I could almost get away with an apple leaf. That would be enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm not boasting here. You mentioned earlier about uh, actually about um, you were looking forward, and I, we appreciate that, for, to, to sort of think about the film of your life. And you mm. thought that you might change your mind a lot, though. You've worked in comedy a lot. You know, you've worked in a lot of comedy, rather, over the years. Yes. Was that, was that, has that always been part of your process, like constantly turning things over in the mind and things changing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it's an essential part of comedy is the possibility of there being a different way to do it. It's what makes comedy exciting is that the moment you think you've got the way to do it or that's the performance or that's the thing that makes this funny, the exciting thing then to do would be to throw it away, to discard that piece of information and to try a completely unique way of doing it. I I never perform on the stage and repeat timing. I try not to. It's easy to, you can, and you can get away with it. You can repeat, you know, the same timing. There are sort of counts you can make, almost, they're almost beats, you know, it's sort of musical Mm. to an extent, comedy. And you can get away with just doing it in a musical manner. So you just, in your head, there's always a sort of set up, two, three, four, punchline, you know, and you can do that. It does work, but it's never as, as exciting or as effective as going set up, Punchline. <laughs> oh, you didn't expect that, did you? Or set up, stand there and do nothing for quite a long time until the audience think you've forgotten your lines and then do the punchline. It's, all those variations are what makes performing interesting, I think. I, I, I've got a real feeling that your film is going to be one of those Kubrickian movies where there are like a thousand <laughs> different takes of one scene and they're all different. They're all different and no they're one knows different. which one they're going to go with. And it'll, we'll find out in the final edit at the end. Well, it's an unusual situation for an actor to be given power over any form of um, filming or making of anything because you just don't as an actor. All you can do is go is turn up and do the best performance you possibly can in each take and hope that, first of all, that they actually use it you know, because <laughs> often you'll be used as a voiceover. You'll think you're doing one of your great takes and, in fact, all that will be taken from it is the sound and the camera will be pointing at the person listening to you and you go, ah, oh, it was really funny in that bit. But it's not as funny, obviously, as the person listening to me. So it's a decision that's made by a director or a producer. You have no power over this at all. So uh, to be told, you know, how do you want it shot? What do you want it to look like? Who do you want in it? This is an opportunity an actor is going to either be terrified by or jump at. Well, savour the power, Michael. And uh, there's a big first question we've got to clear up before we dive into this. Mm -hmm. Is it pronounced biopic or biopic? So it's a biosphere, isn't it? So yes. biopic. biopic. Rather than, so that's that's neither of those, is it? So I, <laughs> so it's not it's not biopic or or biopic. It, it, which would I would think if you if it was biopic, you'd have a hyphen, wouldn't you? That sounds yes, like a hyphenated word. So I would say 
Biopic. I'm only guessing. Biopic it is. And you've you've worked you've worked in the industry for a long time now. Um mm. you, you've worked in, in, in radio and television yeah. um for a long time across a various array of, of That's right. programs. And on stage I've gone from pantomime pantomime dame to the Royal Shakespeare Company. So it's uh, it's it's a, amazingly exactly the same performance in both. <laughs> so you've had these kind of meetings you'll have had meetings in the past and these kind of you know but where would you like your meeting with the executives to be you know this is about you would it be in an office would it be at a restaurant would it be on home territory where would you like to have it would it be the studio? something i've never done in my life i mean i think that life should be about new experiences and something that i've never done in my life is have what those executives do, which is have a breakfast meeting. Do you know they would have a <laughs> breakfast meeting? Uh, Alan Yentob famously used to have breakfast meetings at the Ritz. Oh. Had his own table at the Ritz. I know somebody who went for a breakfast meeting with him and Alan Yentob read the newspaper all the way oh. through it and held it up in front of his face and said, you tell me about it. And they spoke to the back of this newspaper and then, then at the end he didn't say anything and they just eventually went... <sighs> And got up and left. Wow. Mm, I've that's, actually that's just power do you know games, what isn't they, it? that is power games. I've actually just read have you read Bob Mortimer's um autobiography? Yes. Have you read Bob Mortimer? Yeah. And there's a story about Alan the top in that, isn't there, when him and Vic go for a meeting and he <laughs> yeah. basically walked out of the meeting, I think. Was it yeah. he and just kind of didn't come back? I mean, I've I've met him a number of times, Annie Top, and I think he's a really nice man. I get on very well with him, but I also think that I have a strange power, in as much as he hasn't the faintest idea who I am, <laughs> and, and therefore I think has always been slightly worried I might be someone important. <gasps> now that that really is that's no, it's a terrible thing to say about someone. But, <laughs> but I, we've we've met in lifts at the BBC, and I've gone, hi, Alan, and he's gone, hello. And he, he knows that I, he knows he recognizes me, but doesn't know if I'm head of ITV or not. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the fact that you just dangle, you don't say who you are, you just nope. say hello and let that percolate. Yeah, and first names, you know, that sort of thing. I think Even it's good. better. So would you like would you like to do that for the to the executives at the meeting have a breakfast meeting and kind of ignore them the whole way through? You'd never get the film on, would you? Surely, no. I mean, I'm absolutely they want you, used to. My, my whole life has been fawning. I've spent the entire time telling these people how brilliant they are and how funny they are and how much I want to work with them. You know, and then and then go home and tell my wife. I hadn't the faintest like these people know nothing about comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to destroy my career in this podcast. <laughs> Have you noticed, has it changed? Has it always been like this? Has it always been the feeling that people, executives, don't know what they're talking about? Is this a trope or is it based in reality? Um, no, it is. It's a, it's a trope. It's not true at all. I think that actually the people the people who get to the top generally do know what they're talking about. Uh, it's You don't really survive if you if you can't do it. Do you know what I mean? All the yeah. people I've worked with who've been around for a long time and are still there. And in fact, most of them, sadly, I think, have been promoted out of the actual job of doing it. They've been promoted to the position where they run things and they run companies and those sort of things. And they've done very well and they've all made a lot of money from it. But I think it's a shame that they're not hands on. You know, I worked on a thing called Ballot Monkeys, which was written by Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkin. And it was mm. around the election time and it had the most fantastic cast, but it was all being written very last minute. And very, you know, it was incredibly topical. You know, they turned up very early in the morning at Pinewood and uh, and started writing and then looking at the papers and listening to the radio about what was happening that day in the election. 
and uh, and we would then turn up uh, sort of eight o'clock in the morning and sometimes they say actually i haven't written anything for you today do you mind just sitting around on the bus said, no and then you know then they suddenly go, oh, had an idea they'd hand you a piece of paper and you'd have to learn a little sort of scene it was great fun but my bus there was sort of a different bus for each um, political party and my bus was directed by jimmy Mulville, who runs and owns hat-trick productions and he's an incredibly powerful man. But I've known him since I first started in radio. He was the producer of the radio show that I first did as a student. And uh, and he's really, really good. He really, really knows his comedy. And he's a very funny comic performer. So he also does a thing that I don't mind at all, but a lot of people don't like, is that he'll say, he'll say, do it more like this, and he'll do it for you. And he does it really, really amusingly. And you go, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, so I don't mind that at all. But I think it's a shame that people like him don't get to to actually have a hands-on thing anymore. They sit back and they may look at the entire series once it's finished. But then, of course, you know, they would have the skill to, hopefully, to put the right people in charge of it. Did you ever fancy going into that side of things? I was asked you... to. I was offered, well, offered a number of times I've been offered that job. Yeah. And, and each time when I was offered it, it wasn't the right thing to do. And first of all, it wasn't the right thing to do because when I was off, asked to be a, a producer, I was offered a job as a television producer. And, uh, and I said, great, can I cast myself? And they said, <laughs> you can't. No, you can't be in it. You've got to produce it. And I went, oh, no, I don't really fancy it then. No. <laughs> and I turned it down. It was a nice job. Granada Television. They'd moved my entire family up to Manchester. Resettlement funds and all that sort of thing. Flash wow. car, you know. <laughs> it was wow. that I went, no. What show was that? Can you say what show that was? No, it was it was to be a permanent producer on on the on the books, as it were, and just come in and and uh, find your own things, make wow. your own programs. Yeah, and well, yes, there are people all over the country who are going, "You fool, you fool!" And <laughs> almost certainly, my wife, I think. So, <laughs> but um, no, I don't think I'm a fool. I think I spend I spend very little time of my life. I have for the whole of my life done hardly any work. Everything I've done, I've rather enjoyed, and I don't regard it as work. I get paid for it, but I will do the job because I like it, and I and I don't really look at the money. Although I did, did as a younger man, did a lot of commercials, and you know, but I, I like making commercials. I was good at it, you know, and they took no time at all—a couple of days, maybe at most. You go in, you do it; it's all very instant, and uh, and then you go away, and they send you lots of money. It was great. What was your most memorable commercial that you worked on? I've done some really fabulous commercials, I have to say. The most memorable ones are always the really shit ones. You know, <laughs> the ones where you go, oh, no, oh, I've sold my soul. <laughs> I did one for little vacuum cleaners that you clean up the kitchen with. Oh, yeah. I did one of those and I thought it was a spoof. I thought we were doing a spoof commercial sort of thing. They won't believe that, you know, don't really expect a family to be singing about how much they like their mini vacuum cleaner <laughs> and dancing around the kitchen, do they? You know, I thought we'd be doing it with a wink and a nod, but no, no, the director said, you know, no, this is, you know, you love this. You love this vacuum cleaner. <laughs> okay. Mm. And uh, lots of people afterwards, oh, Mike, what the hell is that? 
So I know that, I would say, is £20,000. That's what that is. <laughs> Can you remember the jingle? Did it have a jingle? Did you have to sing the jingle? It, it, was, it was a dustbuster, and it was, ah. to the, it was to the tune of Blockbusters by Sweet, if you remember that far back. That's this right. was, there must be a way. Oh, no, I've spilt the thing. There's got to be a way to dustbuster. <laughs> and off we go. Dustbuster. Buster. Dustbuster. It was terrible. But it sold. They sold. <laughs> oh my god is that do you, do you enjoy the challenge of keeping a straight face for something like that you know as a comedian that's quite a challenge, yeah i it? just i found it a very amusing day because i thought oh, everybody's going to see me doing this <laughs> and i've never been terribly bothered uh, about looking foolish which i think is a, is probably an asset if you do comedy i don't care i don't care if people think i look silly if yeah. I think what I'm doing is funny or if I think it's worth doing, I don't care what people think. So it, it's been a strength, I think. <laughs> well, you do have creative control of this particular project. You are Fantastic. a producer. You can cast yourself in this. Yes. And exciting news, your life has been greenlit for a biopic. But how would your life be told by Hollywood or Bollywood or Nollywood? And mm -hmm. what sort of creative control would you exercise in bringing the greatest story you know to the big screen? So <laughs> big first question, Michael Fenton-Stevens. Yes. What's the film called? What's ah. the biopic of Michael Fenton Stevens called? Yeah, should have written all these down, shouldn't I? I mean, I, I, think, <laughs> I think that I'd probably call it Busy Doing Nothing. <gasps> Is that a good title? Yeah. Like would that interest you? Would that draw you in? Busy Doing Nothing. They say when you're on your deathbed and you're lying there and you're thinking, uh, what did I do in my life? I, I will be quite happy to go, not a lot. <laughs> uh, not a lot. Now, that's quite an achievement, isn't it, really? Because a lot of people rush around all the time trying to achieve and do things and leave a mark. And I'm I'm not really bothered about that. I mean, I, I, I love being with my... Uh, I've loved being with my children and I've loved being with my grandchildren and want to spend as long as I can with them and uh, and as much time as I can with them. And that to me would be the thing if, if at the end of it, if they remember me, you know... So anybody else, when people say, I've seen you on the telly recently, I go, well, there you go. I don't care. You know? I often make things, I, I, and I genuinely mean this, I make things and then forget that people are going to watch them. So people <laughs> say to me, I saw you in a thing the other night. What would that have been? Oh, I can't remember what it was, but you were in it. And I say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's on. I don't look at it. When did you reach this particular attitude of not kind of really being bothered? It's always been there, actually. It's always been there. I do the thing, and then I'm, then I'm thinking, what am I going to do next? Or what, what, should, what am I doing tomorrow? I don't really think about that thing I've done. And leaving a mark, though, like the leaving the mark thing, because obviously when, you know, the, the, the classic thing is people, when they're younger, they're really ambitious and they want to change the world and make yeah. a name for themselves. Were you ever like that? Or have you always been kind of just No, I think that's probably going? why I'm not. I mean, I think you can generally tell when people have had as many opportunities as, I, as I've had to become famous and they aren't, then clearly <laughs> that person doesn't have a drive, you know. I, I've had lots and lots of chances where if I'd, if I'd taken them, if I'd said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'm going to do that with you. Yeah, we will sit down in a room and talk about that. That's a very good idea. Or I've mentioned to people, this is a great idea. Don't you think that would be really good? And they go, that's a great idea. We should write that. And I go, well, you write it. I can't be asked. I've had the <laughs> idea now. I've had the idea. I know what it's going to be. I can see it in my head. And that's enough for me. I don't really need to go and make the whole thing, surely. That's a waste of time. I've, I've, I've lived it in my head. <laughs> 
I now don't want to go through the process just so everybody else can join me. What, 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 like when you say you had opportunities to become like really famous and you didn't, what were like, were there any particular ones? Like you were off, you were going to be Bond and you went, nah. No, 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 not that. And I really don't. And also, I would say that fame is, I mean, I've, I have friends who've been incredibly famous. You know, and then are suddenly not so famous. You know, like it's extraordinary how everybody's sort of rediscovering Hugh Grant. And you go, really? Rediscovering? So he went out of fashion for a bit, did he? Or people mm. forgot about him. And they did. They did. That's astonishing. And now they're going, oh, yeah, he was the... I remember he made a film a long time ago. He was quite young and pretty in that, wasn't he? Not anymore. So it's, it's astonishingly ephemeral uh, fame. And I've watched people have it and be right at the peak of it. And then you watch it go away. And, and some people in that position are desperate, desperate to keep it. Well, the Klingon 20, which explains, you know, all those uh, were eating kangaroos arseholes. That's what that is. <laughs> and some people go and I'm a celebrity as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking about the dinner party I went to. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's what explains it is, is, is that they don't know any other way to make a living. So they think, well, the only way that I can make a living is the way I've made it before, which is through being, well, famous. And I won't get the stuff unless I am famous. So I need to be famous. So I'll do anything to hang on to that fame. And, you know, and it's a nice, nice payday turn up these things and you might end up, what, 150, maybe 200,000, maybe 500,000 pounds. Fantastic. You know, really, most people ought to be able to go, well, I don't really need to work after that. But not a lot of these people. It's sort of strange, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think what you, you know, the point you make about how ephemeral it is and how when you become used to a life with that, to suddenly not have that, for that to be you, I think, is that right? Like, is that's you. That right? In, in a way, it defines you, yes. So your fame defines you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe in my head, I am famous. Maybe in my head, I am always famous. Or, you know, I'm certainly worth knowing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really interested, interested about the whole thing of like having a great idea and then saying to someone, oh, about, you know, this idea. And they say, we, we should write it. And you go, yeah, I don't know about that. Like, it sounds like yeah, a lot yeah. of work or whatever. Always if I could write it quickly, you know, I mean, if I could go, mm, yeah, and write quickly. I was always very envious of uh, Steve Punt, who writes with Hugh Dennis and has done the Now Show forever. Wow, that man can type. He can type like with such speed. And I was always jealous of that because he would have it in his head and it just it would go on the page instantly. So um, whereas my process would be much slower. I've got it in my head and I've got to try and get it on the page before I sort of forget it, you know, before I've moved on to something else. And I've had ideas for, for stuff and I've mentioned it to people and, and I'm not going to say what it was particularly because, in fact, I don't think the person really even remembers that I told them. Do you know that thing? And I think that's yeah. perfectly understandable as well. And yeah, yeah. something that I would never complain about, really. I've had ideas for, I had an idea for a book and somebody then brought out this book, the person I told the idea to, and and it made a lot of money. And I've spoken to them about it and said, that did well. And they were fantastic. It was great. Yeah. And I thought, mm, you don't remember I gave you that idea. <laughs> oh, that's, it's all right. Yeah. You know, it's all right. It was only an idea. I've, n I've never understood why in life having an idea should eventually mean because you had that idea that you were a multi-billionaire why that idea would ever be worth that much you should nobody nobody's idea unless it's an idea that you know basically cures all cancer and illness and makes everybody happy forever you know if it, if you come up with that idea we ought to as mankind we ought to turn around and say to that person what do you want anything you, you can have anything you want yeah. forever, you know, for as long as you like, because we don't care. It was a brilliant idea. But, you know, having an idea of a way of doing a software 
you know, changing some new form of how to make a computer run. No, no, that's really not. And, you know, you shouldn't then be able to build your own rockets if you fancy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, that's what I'm saying. I've never understood why somebody investing, somebody's granddad decided to buy shares in a small company. And as a result, you are still receiving hundreds of thousands of pounds a year for them taking that risk. So there ought to be a time limit on it. it we ought to, as a society, we ought to say, well, thanks for the investment. Thanks. There's you've had your return. Now it goes into the common pot. And that common pot goes to look after people. I've, I'm, I'm very much a communist. <laughs> also, that thing of, you know, there's that, I don't know, an example maybe of maybe in the 11th century invading another country and then taking all the lands mm -hmm. and then a thousand odd years later, <laughs> those people still have that land. Would like people all to all swear allegiance world. to them. Yes. I can't think of what I is I'm thinking of. No, it's me on the neither. Tip of my tongue. No. Yes, but yeah, and then somehow that still be a going concern, right? Yeah, that's, I completely that's... agree with you. I just it doesn't make sense. You sort of go, well, you've had your compensation, you've got the money. <laughs> now we should put it back into the Commonwealth, as it were. And I thought he was the head of the Commonwealth. Oh, oh, that's good. Thank that's you. That's good. Mm. That's very. I, you know, they won't even they won't even see the irony in that, will they, Michael? They wouldn't they would even never, see the irony. He would never understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> because he clearly thinks he's a good man. He believes he is a good man. And I think almost certainly is a very good man, a very caring and thoughtful man. But you can't fight that sort of upbringing and ever see it as being absurd, which I sort of <laughs> think it is. I feel, I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry that, that, that he can only see the world from the point of view of someone who his entire life has been part of a ritual. You say you're busy doing nothing. I love the, love the title of the film, Busy Doing good. Nothing, because... Mm. You know, it, it, it suggests a kind of happy-go-lucky nature, which I think yeah. is evident that you you have. But also, you say this, and yet if 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 someone was to look on your IMDb credits, mm. that ain't true. You've been busy. You've been busy for quite a while, and you've been involved in some pretty pretty big shows. Obviously, yeah. I don't feel as if I don't feel as if that's been busy. You know, I don't find that sort of work arduous. Amazing. That's what a blessing. Yeah, quite. I'm very lucky, very lucky indeed to be involved in those. So things, you know, we did Hapless. This was brilliant fun, just fantastically lovely people. Very, very funny. And again, that joy of having the opportunity to to just experiment with a joke, to just every time you did a scene, we were encouraged to try it another way. See what else you can get out of that. You know? And Gary Signor wrote it, who's a brilliant writer and takes enormous care over what he writes. It's amazing to have put that amount of dedication into something and that amount of hard work, and then still to be not precious about it. I love it when people do that. I find it amazing that, that writers don't say, no, that's not what I wrote. Read what I wrote. <laughs> you know, I, could, I would absolutely understand it if, um, if people shouted at us for not doing their lines. Because they say, it's taken me six months of agony to, to choose those words. Say them. But, you know, he didn't. And I was constantly, I, I, I like to mess around. And so I, we were all a bit like it. We, we liked to, we were happy for people to, to mess around a bit with it. And that meant that, that you know, it, each take would be different. Everything was different. It was just fantastic fun.
I'm assuming. I'm assuming. You, have you ever had that? I, I'm assuming you haven't had that, where a writer has just been yelling. I, I don't mind either way, actually. I mean, I, I feel that I'm I'm there to to represent it the way that they want me to, and if I can contribute, I'm very happy to do that. But if they say, well, you know, and again, that would be understandable. But if you suddenly say, have you thought of this line? They go, yes, yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, almost certainly thought of every line because I've thought of nothing else for about two years. So if you're now going to suggest a line that we think we should put in at the very last minute that you think will be better than the ones that I've come up with over the last two years of very, very hard work, I think you're going to be wrong. And that would be understandable, I think, if if they did. And I've worked with directors, uh, John Morton, who is a brilliant writer and also a fantastic director. I mean, really great, but incredibly precise. He's very precise about what he writes, and he's very precise about what you say. So all of those amazing things like W1A and 2012 and People Like Us, uh, which mm. you know was a fantastic series, sort of forgotten now, but amazing yeah. stuff, that they are exactly what he wrote. So I, I once had a piece of direction from him when he said, that was great, okay, right, Mike, great. Can we try it? Just see if we can do it faster. Just have a go. I know that was really fast, but see if we can do it faster. And uh, oh, by the way, that that um is an er. Because <laughs> it was it was an amazing piece of writing. I had to say, no, 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 no. Yes, and I'd spent ages learning the no's and how many there were and which <laughs> in which order they came. And it was just perfectly crafted. You know what I mean? It doesn't really matter what I'm talking about there. You can see how um, uh, I'm sure that that would have been the same in the Vicar of Dibley for the person who basically had to do that. Joke, <laughs> you know. But well, I did it before then. I did it. That, that was before oh, wow. the Vicar of Dibley. So is it is something like that for you harder to learn than another type of write? You know, another sort of script where things are a little bit more fluid potentially in terms of how they are. Yeah, it is harder. It's harder. It's harder work. Yes, because you. It's easy to paraphrase in your brain if you're trying to remember things. You can paraphrase it and sort of. This is sort of what I'm saying. And also, you can cover the fact that you're trying to grasp for, for what you're saying by putting in ers and ums and you knows and things like that. And if they're not in the script, some writers will let you do that because they say, well, you're making it look very natural. But other writers will say, no, you can't just slot that in because it breaks the rhythm. And, you know, they're probably both right. Well, we've got to think about the rhythm of mm-hmm. busy doing nothing. Yes. And the rhythm begins with the opening scene. It's an so what is the scene. opening scene of Busy Doing Nothing? Well, I would choose the moment that I think I would regard as my first public performance. And I think it, it, it's, it's important because, in a way, it sums up the rest of my career. Uh, my father was a solicitor, but he loved to perform. Had his own little troupe of people on a weekend. They would sing, do old-time musicals, or they would go to places and do shows. And he was always organising them and working out running orders and then you'll sing this song and I'll sing that song. And then he'd love to tell jokes. So I think he sold the same jokes his entire life <laughs> and his own routines that he did and very rarely added new jokes to it. But um, we were on holiday and he said, I'm going to enter the talent competition. He said, but I think I know what's going to really win it for me. He said, because I'm much better than these people, but they'll go for the sympathy vote. So I want you to be in it. And I was about eight i think seven or eight and he said what you do is i'll sing this song and just as i'm finished i go okay let, and you come on and you pull on my jacket 
and at the back and I go, what? I'm, I'm performing, go away, I, go away, don't disturb me now. And you say, no, can I, and you say, no, please, look, they, they come to see me, they don't want to see you, go away. And then they'll go, you know, oh no, we want to see him. And I'll say, well, what is it? And you say to me, have you seen what your son's doing in the swimming pool? And I say, well, all little children do that in the swimming pool. And you say, yes, but not from the top diving board. <laughs> and it's quite a good joke. That's a good joke. You don't expect it. It works well. Fantastic. So my very first moment was I stood, I sat at the table by the side of the stage. And when he got to the end of this song, I went up onto the stage and pulled on his jacket. And he did the, no, no get off. You, you don't, don't, you're spoiling everything. Go away. He said, well, all right, what is it? And I said, have you seen what your son's doing off the top diving board? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it sort of <laughs> leads us down the path of never quite enough preparation, never working quite hard enough at it, and just in a way relying on my own innate ability, whatever that is, uh, to get by. And, uh, and I think that would, be the, that would be the thing that I think the, the film ought to explore is the fact that I can be, that I have been as successful as I've been with so little effort. <laughs> <laughs> to be, I mean, give yourself a break. You were seven or eight years old, like the, yeah. uh, getting, getting the, getting the beats of the, of the joke construction. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, with very little prep time as well. <laughs> never done in front, Hard never work. been in front of an audience before. No. Do you remember the feeling of being in front oh, well, of an audience? Well, of course, the, the, the truth of that matter is, of the, that situation is that because I messed the joke up, I got a much bigger laugh than if I'd done the joke because my right. dad then went, yeah, now you see what you've done here, don't you? And I went, <laughs> what? And he said, and he then told, explained it and said, go off, come back on and try again. And we did it. And by the time I got on, we'd won. We'd won. No, <laughs> there's no doubt about it. The place was going berserk. They erupted when I sang uh, Edelweiss in my lovely little sweet soprano voice. I mean, I got a standing ovation. So it's slightly that thing of breaking the rules as well and, and messing it about. You no, know, that that settled in that moment as well, I think. And so what do you think? And that was that was the kind of ethos that you, you have had ever since not being prepared and liking breaking and enjoying breaking the rules. Those kind yeah, of those two and, things. And also I discovered at that moment that it doesn't really matter if you go wrong. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? That's a, it's yeah. a very good lesson to learn early on. A lot of people who don't perform, first of all, they don't understand how you can stand up in front of people and do it. They say, oh, I, I, don't know, I don't know how you go on. I don't. Then they say, I don't know how you learn your lines. And you say, well, that's just repetition. It's not, there's no secret to that. Whenever people say to me now, when you do those sort of question and answer things at, at um, performances, at theatres and things, they talk to the cast, and somebody will always say, how do you learn your lines? And I would say, we don't. Who told you that? <laughs> and they said, well, I said, we have, ear you've got, everybody's got them in. We have little earpieces. I've still got mine in. Uh, and, <laughs> and somebody off stage reads them. And you know that thing where you say something, I say, say it straight back. We've got a person in the wing who just reads the script and we all just say it back afterwards. And you'd be amazed how many people go, really? <laughs> well, of course not really. We'd learn the lines by saying them over and over and over and over again. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I have to say, your dad sounds like a very generous performer. Like a very gen was he an amateur? An amateur performer, a very amateur generous, perform, yes. encouraging individual. No, it was completely in order that he would win. I mean, he, he dragged <laughs> me in. He dragged, he used me. He, it's child abuse almost. 
Well, that's actually, to be fair, then that is many of the foundation of showbiz careers has been laid upon the exploitation of children. Yep. Or, 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 or I'm amazed you didn't, didn't get me to bring on a limping dog with me. <laughs> did, he, did he take an interest? Did your family take an interest in your career when you decided to go into performing? Um, yeah, I mean, he was a lawyer and I sort of trained as a lawyer. So I was supposed to go down that route and oh, I didn't. Wow. I went off to university and then whilst I was there, got sort of dragged into, well, I, I forced my way into almost everything that was going on as far as performing was concerned. I did 33 plays in my three years at university. 33? 33. There were several times, most of the time, I was rehearsing a play, performing a play in the evening and learning another one that I was going to be doing after that. Where did you go to university? Uh, well, I went to what's now known as Oxford Brooks. And I went to Oxford Brooks because I knew that Oxford University had a different theatre group for every single college. They all had their own drama societies. So I joined right. them all. <laughs> and there was the Oxford Theatre Group, which was the town group. I did that. I performed during the Christmas period with them. And uh, and I joined the Oxford Review Company. And that's what that's the thing that sort of got me into doing sketches and, and things eventually. So you were never not you were never not learning lines. You were never not performing Always. or learning lines. Absolutely, even to the point where my my tutor said to me, you know, look, I've let you do this for two years because I understand that you you know you come to university, you're probably one of the hardest working people at university. Unfortunately, none of the work is about law, <laughs> what you're supposed to be studying. And so um, he said, I've let you do this, and and I know that you know essays have not come in and you've not attended tutorials and seminars. I said, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, we had a dress rehearsal. He said, I know, I know. And he was very keen on it. He came to see me in most things. Thank God, actually. Wow. Because I would have been chucked out. But he, he let it all go by. And he said to me, in this last year, you cannot, you know, you ca I said, I'm already, I'm cast. I'm cast up till Christmas. And, uh, and I had all these plays lined up. I said, I can't let them down. He said, all right, okay. After Christmas, you stop and you get your head down and you study and you try and pass this degree. I went, okay. And I only did two more plays after Christmas. Oh. <laughs> but, I, but it was a great thing. It was a great thing is by the time I got to do my finals, law was learning a lot of, of case law and facts and, and all those sort of things. So I was very good at putting things into my head. Uh, so did you yeah. pass your exams? Did you pass I your I did, law? yeah. Yeah, I did. I got a two-one. Busy doing nothing again. Just come, just like comes to the surface here, doesn't it? You're absolutely full to the gills with plays, and that you still get a two-one in in law. Uh, my is... wife, who um, who I'm, I'm still married to. In fact, today is my forty-second wedding anniversary. Forty-second oh. wedding anniversary. Congratulations! It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I wonder who those people in the background were keeping quiet while we were talking. <laughs> I can see the cake candles are still going. You probably They're should blow them out sooner or later. And somebody's standing with a bottle of champagne, ready to open the bottle of champagne. No, anyway, <laughs> 42 years. But my wife and I, we were together then as students. That's where we met at, at college. And, uh, and we lived together then, got married just after we came out. I came out of university, which is why it's such a long marriage. And... Um, she would walk around the house and just shout out cases to me. And I'd, and she'd say, you know, Wade versus Johnson. And I, and I'd say Wade versus Johnson, 1960. And I just had memorized them all. Wow. So as if I were, as if I were doing a play. Yes. I would have got, I had a good memory at that time. Very good memory. I learned Horatio 
uh, I stepped in to a production of Hamlet and played Horatio in it. And they were they were during the technical rehearsal. So the fellow said, the other fellow's broken his leg, he can't do it. He said, he's going to have to drop out. Do you think you could, we'll let you go on with the book. And I said, no, I think I can learn it. And over three days, I learned the part, yes. I wish I had that memory now. I mean, well, I, I, before I go into the next question, I have to ask, were there people on your course that you were friends with, you knew, who were a little bit furious you could have, you did so so yeah. little work and then still got a really good degree out of out of oh it. absolutely yeah yeah although there was one man on my course <laughs> there were two people on my course and their names were danny and lucy and they were very lovely people and i liked them a lot and we got on very well and we saw each other after university which is nice we were sort of friends for a bit and danny said to me you know i think i might try going into the film industry and i said uh, okay he said you know anybody and I gave him some addresses of people I'd met and and you know I begged names of other people and he wrote to them got a job as a runner he's married they met Danny and Lucy still married same as oh. as I'm with my wife and Danny now is head of film four uh, having <laughs> having been head of Disney and head of Miramax <laughs> Daniel wow. Batsek Daniel Batsek his name is Look wow He's had, now, if you think I've done well, now there's a man who not only is very good, but he's clearly put the work in. <laughs> he's amazing, isn't it? Well, we can tap him up for this. I mean, we should definitely get him up for busy doing nothing. This feels like a film for production all over. He might put the money up. Come on. <laughs> if Danny's going to be involved as, as an executive, I have to ask mm. the question, who's going to be playing the lead? Who's cast as Michael Fenton Stevens in Busy Doing Nothing? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, I slightly feel there's a question later which affects this, in as oh. much as I'd quite like it to be a cartoon. Hmm. <gasps> That's. I think that might be a first. Is that it? might be a first for us. Yeah. Why? Why a cartoon? Why would you like it? To be well, a because because uh, I live in a world where my mind wanders. And it jumps about, and I, I'm sort of uh, often in a little dream world. I like. Uh, to the great annoyance of my wife, she's 42 years, it's astonishing because almost every day she'll say, oh, for God's sake. When I just like the fact that words mean different things, I like the fact that you can say the king has asked us to swear at him, and I certainly will be swearing at the screen <laughs> while he's there, yes. Those sort of things. You know, I like the fact that that's what you can do with language, that it jumps yeah. about. And, and, I, and I, that's what I do all day. That's why all day long, it's my brain is going, hmm, that's interesting. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's nice. And I listen, I have to avoid doing it in conversation as much as I can, because I'm hearing, when people are talking to me, I hear possible jokes. Right. Do you know what I mean? And it's a, yeah. it's almost a, a vice, really. People say to me, what are you smiling about? And I go, nothing. Because I just go, no, but this doesn't, I haven't worked it out yet. There's something there in what you said, you know. There's <laughs> definitely a joke there. So um, I think it would work well as a cartoon to have it, to be able to suddenly go into fantasy, you know, to suddenly go off into a world and come back out of it. It's, okay. it's an easier thing to do in, in cartoons. If, if it wasn't a cartoon and I was actually casting someone as me, then the person who I, as a young man, was constantly told you could almost be this person or you could have their parts. They can't do them all. That's how I was once told by an agent, we're happy to take you on because we've just taken on <laughs> Tony Slattery and he can't do all the work he's being offered. <laughs> 
which is why I didn't go to that agent, obviously. But Tony <laughs> Slattery, as a young performer, mm. I would be very proud to be to have been him. And uh, I do know him, and I've known him since, and he's had a very, very tough life. But he really was... Uh, of that crowd, of that generation, I think the one that uh, that maybe was the most talented, and yet he was electrifying. He was an he electrifying. Was, he was fantastic. Before. I know, you know, and I remember seeing all of those people, and thinking, do you know, when you think you're good at something, and then you walk into a room and there are people who are really good at it, <laughs> you know. Uh, so being in a room with young Stephen Fry's and Hugh Laurie's and and Emma Thompson and those sort of people. You know, all, all through my career, I've enjoyed that process. I, do, I don't find those people a threat because I don't expect to be the best anymore. You know, when I was young, I thought, well, I'm, I'm the best at this. I can do any of this. This is easy. You know, but I don't expect that to be the case anymore. I expect to walk into a room and go, I'm quite good at this. Well, I've done, <laughs> I've done a lot of it, so I should be all right. But, um, you know, I worked with David Tennant when he was a, a young actor. We just did a radio thing together. And I remember thinking, he's got everything. He can be anybody he wants. I remember during that thing, he was. it was announced that he'd been cast as Doctor Who. And I said, don't do it. What are you doing? <laughs> You'll be stuck. You'll be stuck as Doctor Who forever. And what's happening? He's coming back. He can't get away from it. I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I went with Olivia Coleman. I, oh, yeah. I just, you know, did the first, I think may have been the first television job she did. And then we did another one, which may have been the first one that she did that went out. And she was just blindingly good. Amazing. You, you can't, you know, it's really obvious when you come across those people. Is I it? Think. You could just feel it on set in the room? I think so, particularly are. because you sort of, suddenly everything's so fast, you know, the, the speed with which they make decisions, the speed with which they, they generate emotions and that you can see them so clearly without doing anything. They're not working hard. It, it's not... I'm doing this now, then I'm doing that. And it's not, they're not overdoing it. It just is actually happening, but it all happens at lightning speed. It's, it's thrilling to be in the room with. It's thrilling to be on stage with. You know, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing. It just makes you better. It ought to make you better. And I love it. I love coming across those people because you go, oh, wow, really should have done more work. <laughs> Is that? <laughs> is, I mean, that's it's becoming that's a theme, not, that isn't it? Yes. Well, yeah, it's becoming a theme. But I like you. You do work hard, but you do it in a different way, don't you? Like the like the law degree. You know, maybe, that's um, the thing, maybe. isn't it? It's how it fits everyone. People work differently, don't they? I think. Yeah. It's about finding your own tempo and your your. And it's not that I leave everything to the last minute. I mean, I I do often, but I I quite like that that rush of of taking in information. I mean, yeah. I do my podcast. One of the great advantages I have is that rather like you, I don't know what the answers are going to be. And so it's fine to be ignorant about it. I did an interview with somebody just yesterday, a fantastic uh, comedian called Joe Wells, who's who's autistic. Now, I have two autistic grandchildren, therefore thought that I would be quite knowledgeable about it. He chose to put into his time capsule, which is what people do on my podcast. Uh, he chose uh, things like uh, public enemy. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I said, I don't know anything about this. You'll have to tell me all about it. Is that, that's hip hop, is it? <laughs> uh, okay, what's that? Tell me about it. I missed it. I have children who liked it. And I kept saying, turn that down. Do you know, some people find it very difficult, except that they don't know something or that, mm -hmm. or that, or that they're not an expert on something. And nearly everybody, if you ask them for an opinion, very few people will say, well, I don't think I'm the person to be asking. 
Well, yes, that's true. Maybe I'm wrong here, but opinion more than ever appears to be replacing fact as a mm. as a as a metric by which we kind of understand the world or communicate with one another. Perhaps I, yes. I you know, opinion has overtaken. The, you know, evidence and 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 facts. Yeah, um, and that in and, fact all opinions are equally worthwhile. Well, that's very true. Yes, you know, exactly. Which that. is strange, and you go, well, that's actually that opinion is your opinion, but it's really not worth much because it's based on nothing and it's just something you've made up in your head. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you know, whereas my opinion or the opinion of this other person here is based on twenty-five years of hard study. I can show you the images that prove the world is not flat. Uh, <laughs> yes. And and I've and we've been round the world. We've flown round it and uh, it's it's fine and it works perfectly well as a theory. So thank you very much, Professor. Now, Mr I... Johnson, you think the world is flat, don't you? <laughs> I do, and I'll tell you for why. <laughs> Now, I know you said a young Tony or Tony Slattery playing mm. you in Busy Doing Nothing, but you also mentioned animation. So would you be voicing animation? Would you be voicing yourself? You would These beautiful, mellifluous tones of yours would be... Ah, yes, you see. Now, this is a problem. Over the years, my voice has become more mellifluous and deeper. In a way, the interesting part of my life would be the youth of it. So I think you'd have to have somebody young voicing it. Uh, my, I listened to recordings of myself from the 1970s and 80s, and I sometimes think, oh, it's been sped up. And I think, no, it's not been sped up. That's how I sounded. How not that weird? It's you know, really high little, funny little voice. <laughs> and, of course, I also come from my uh, my father being a solicitor, was um, had taught himself to speak properly because his parents were dockers. And all my cousins all came from Bermondsey, from Rotherhive. And they all, right. had, all the whole family had been dockers, South London, South London, born and bred, and they talked like that. And my dad, when he was talking to crooks, would talk like that, leave it out, don't be daft. You can, and he can't do a runner. No, I'll tell you what, we're going there. And then he would turn to the barrister and just talk in a different way. So he became a chameleon. And he and I think he sort of passed that on to me. So, in fact, the way that I speak now is not the way I spoke when I was fifteen. Did you have a Did you have a bit more of a South London accent? Yeah, yeah, I certainly did. I found it difficult to speak posh, as it were. It would it would take an effort. I had to really concentrate to do it. But now I find it. I have to concentrate to talk not posh. <laughs> Did you? It's funny, isn't it? Because it was. It was. It would hamper career progression and you know possibilities, wouldn't it? If you didn't speak with those tones. Yes, quite. Although, really, what I should be now being considered to play some old bloke on EastEnders because oh. I, it would be. I would be right for it. But going nobody, on the square, ruffling some feathers. I said, "Yeah, leave it out." I would be. Oi! I'd be big trouble. Kev, don't start. <laughs> Although that's a strange, because there's so many people who've gone on to EastEnders who don't genuinely have that accent, that actually yeah. they've developed their own London accent, haven't they? It's, it's this specific. The Walford, Walford has become a part of London that, that doesn't exist and yet has its own accent, I think. Well, it's, it's a good point because Pam St. Clement, I mean, she ain't uh, an East London uh, speaker. You know, no. she, her, when she had her normal speaking voice is very, very to-do. Yes, and June Brown had a beautiful yes. speaking voice. Yes, I buried Ethel. I was the vicar who buried Ethel. <laughs> so I had to do a great erection at the end about, about poor Ethel. And I thought, so what a shame. After all these years, I can't come in here and go, she was a lovely girl. 
<laughs> she had a beautiful dog. So we're all going to put her in the ground and we're going to go down to the pub and have a couple of pints. Celebrate her. She's a lovely bird. <laughs> I, I didn't get the chance to do any of that. I'd say Ethel was born in 1940. Oh, <laughs> well, that wasn't your because you've played you played a member of the cloth before as well. Sorry, as well rather um, yes. in Ninety Nights, right? In Ninety yeah. Nights, I played I played all sorts of vicars and people. In fact, I'm quite proud of the fact that I recently played the Pope, and uh, and therefore I think I have the full pack. I've played bishops, <laughs> archbishops, priests. Uh, and now the Pope. So I've gone right through. Before we push on, I have to ask you, um, working with Julia Davis, um, mm. what's that like as an experience? Fabulous. I mean, yeah, who wouldn't love to do that? One of the funniest and most inventive people I've ever met, I think. Delightful to work with, really just enjoyed everybody's performance so much. that was You've just felt as if you were on cloud nine all the time because she was constantly laughing at other She's a terrible giggler. And she would be doing scenes and just have to constantly stop because she'd laugh at what you were doing. And you, you, there's nothing more complimentary than an actor of her standing and her ability finding you funny. You know, you you just you you beam with pride at those things. And she was so she constantly changed the script. I've got the original scripts of Ninety Nine, and they are virtually nothing like the program that went <laughs> out. So she was constantly rewriting it as we did it, and it's amazing. In fact, the, the very last scene of the first series where I, where she kills me, her and Mark Gatiss kill me, which was brilliant fun, was filmed in Steve Coogan's house in, <laughs> down in Hove uh, six months after we'd finished filming. <laughs> I had to have my hair cut to make it look as if I was the same person I had been six months before. <laughs> I, I, I interviewed Alex McQueen a while ago for Sally Forever, which was a Julia, oh, another yeah. Julia Davis piece. And he said about she pushes you to the edge of yeah. laughter. And if he said, his, you know, that's what she would do. Mm. She would almost be challenging you to not laugh. Yeah. Is that, was that in like uh, as she pushed you to the edge in every scene? Is that your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. You can see that almost in the filming of it. You can see it in scenes that she would leave pauses that were sort of they're too long. They're too long. You, you know, you, you're supposed to speak now and you're not speaking. <laughs> and she'd just look at you and just leave it. I mean, we did a, well, she was burying her husband and the funeral scene, she arrived on a, on a large black horse with feathers coming out of its head, rode it into the church and then stood there and did the most disgusting speech about her husband and their sex life. It was incredibly funny. <laughs> Uh, Night to Night, I believe, is available on the iPlayer. Should anyone wish to watch it? Is it? it? Is an abs- uh, I think so. I think it's an abs- I mean, it's a it's a masterpiece of comic. Yeah, I think suburban terrorism. I think I described her as like a her style of comedy is like suburban terrorism in the way yeah. that she sort of upends society in like quiet. She's society. one of those people, like I say, that the the thrill of uh, finding yourself in a room or being asked to actually work with those people, you sort of go, oh, I can't believe I've got the chance to do this. I can't believe. I've been given this opportunity. It's so wonderful. It's um, it's an amazing thing. And to get that part, I had to do hours and hours of improvisation with her. I would just turn up at, at uh, Baby Cow Productions and we just sat in a room and, and I pretended to be Gordon the vicar and she pretended to be her part. And we improvised and improvised and we talked about all sorts of things. And, wow. I, and I think it was basically her challenging you to say, you know, can you keep this going? Can you do it and not laugh? not giggle up the things we're saying. One we did where literally it was an hour and a half 
where we just sat in a room <laughs> and kept these characters up and talked about all sorts of things. And she went into great detail about, you know, questioning me about my sex life with, with Sue, <laughs> which I, of course, didn't want to talk about. And so I spent the time trying to avoid it. And she found all sorts of meanings in, the, in my... It was just an amazing... I wish we had a tape of it. It was extraordinary. She's brilliant. I mean, without doubt, she's a she's a, a maestro. But you can see how much you can see. There we are. There's me talking about. I mean, I would always forgotten we'd done that, and you talk about it, and then it comes back to me. And uh, and I do that all the time. My life is full of. Oh God, yeah, we did that. Wow, that was <laughs> fabulous. You know, I really do look back through my life and go, Oh my God, how you could possibly edit it to make it a nice hour and a half film. Because there are too many, just too many, for me, too many amazing things. Well, amazing. this brings us neatly on. This brings us neatly on, Michael, I have to say. Mm. I mean, we, we, you've answered the genre. That's going to be an animation. The budget, yeah. I mean, the budget, it, it, it sort of, it doesn't really matter, I it's, guess. It's all right. We've got Danny Batsek on board. We're okay. Exactly. Film 4's back Film to fact it. They're very so keen on it. Which parts, though, of your life would definitely have to be in Busy Doing Nothing? And why? Which parts would definitely have to be in there? I'm assuming the opening scene, that first taste of sort of uh, stage life would have yeah. to be in there. But what else would have to be in there? Uh, well, there would be another moment which was pivotal, I think, in my career. I was definitely aiming, I think, although I did like doing comedy, I did a lot of comedy, and I seemed to be more successful. The plays in which I was playing comic parts, I felt more at home. But I really, if you think about being an actor, which nobody in my family had ever gone into the theatre. They didn't know anything about acting. And so if you think, well, I'm going to be an actor, your decision is, well, clearly then I have to aim to try and be a proper actor. I have to try and do Shakespeare and those sort of things. So I studied hard. I I read all of Shakespeare. I read the entire, I bought the book and read it. <laughs> I sat wow. on the bank of the river one summer and uh, and just sat there and read it from cover to cover. And then I read it again. Because the only my only experience have been you know doing A levels and and O levels, which make you loathe a book. Mm. So I read it again and thought, wow, this is full of amazing stuff. And the stories were really good; they were really exciting. And I thought, this is great stuff. And so that would be where I saw myself going. I have to go in that direction. To be an actor, I need to be doing that sort of thing. And um, I auditioned at the end of my second year to go up to Edinburgh, to the Edinburgh Festival. And I auditioned for plays, for directors, and, and I'd got parts in three plays. So this is great. And really nice parts, meaty parts. And, and I wasn't even at the university, so it was fantastic, you know, to be, for them to not be at all bothered by that. And, you know, I was welcomed in because I could act, I suppose. Yeah. And then right at the end of it, somebody said, Would you, oh, hang on a minute, we've got a fellow who's going to do the review. Do you want to be in the review? And I said, well, what is a review? And I really didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I mean, I, I thought, is, does he mean like old time music hall? That sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and this fellow stepped forward and said, no, it's sort of sketches. It was sort of Python. He said, do you know much about that sort of stuff? I said, well, you know, I, know I, I think I'm quite funny. I can be funny, I think. He said, can you do voices and accents? I said, yeah, I can, yeah. He said, great. He said, can you sing? I said, yes. Yeah, I know I've got a good voice. I can sing well. He said, right. Can you sing high? I said, I can sing. I've got a really high falsetto. I said, yeah, I can sing like Julie Andrews, you know, which I could at the time. And he said, these are, these are all the right answers. Can you grow a beard? Was my, is my <laughs> question. I said, I can. He said, very good. Okay. So I suppose, um, I don't really know much about singing, but um, you ought to sing me something. So I sang, I said, okay. So I sang 
And I left my heart in San Francisco, above a blue and windy sea, when I come home. To... And I showed off a bit and got, you know, louder. And he went, OK, that's good. Yeah, you can sing. He said, uh, right, OK, now sing it and be funny. <laughs> so I went, uh, OK. I left my heart. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you want to be in the review? <laughs> and uh, that was Angus Deaton, who I um, who I worked with almost continuously for the next ten years. Really, we toured the world. We made records together. We did radio shows together. We did uh, three television series together. So that moment absolutely launched me into into the business. And I got I did the pilot for my for the radio show when I was still a student. <laughs> having told my tutor I wouldn't do anything, I went down to London the week before my finals <laughs> and recorded a radio pilot. <laughs> I'd also, the week before that, gone on this. is a uh, This ought to be in there. I My very first experience on radio is I went down to London to see what it was like in the Paris studios where this thing was going to be recorded. And Jimmy Mulville, who I mentioned earlier, said, yeah. well, we're recording the Frankie Howard show do you want to be in it? And I said, okay, yeah, great. He said, okay, right, these are the things. There's a bit in it called Dr. Frankie, where Frank, you know, will pretend to be a doctor in like an agony aunt, and you call in yeah. and ask him questions, and then he tells a joke. I said, okay. He said, so you've got like four different voices to do. I said, okay. So I looked at the thing, oh, this is easy. I'll do, you know, Yorkshire, I'll do Birmingham, London for that one, and Posh for the last one. So before we'd started, Frankie Howard had done this thing where he talked to the audience and he was saying, don't you, don't, no, no, because people, no, shameful. It's, oh, they're shameful, some people, you comedians. You see them here and they, they do something. It doesn't get a laugh because it's radio. They can get away with everything. So they just, <laughs> and he did this little movement. He said, they, they'll go like that. And he put his hands up so, to make, as if, you know, they, they try to ask you to laugh. He said, shameful. So I would never, no. Madam, no, please, I would never. He said, oh, you know, I might do this. And he put his hand behind his back and he just wiggled it behind his back by his bottom, like a sort of wiggling tail. He said, I might do that. And of course, people laughed. He went, you know, that sort of thing. Yes, that'll be do. That'll do. So now during the show, every time he'd done a joke that didn't get much of a laugh, he would stop, look at the audience, and then wiggle his hand behind his back. And then <laughs> they'd laugh. So they'd then edit it. So I did these four things. I did the first question. He did his joke. Second one, joke. Third one, joke. Fourth one, I got a laugh. I got a laugh on the question because I think, you know, I like to think it's because I said it in an amusing way. And I thought, oh, I've got a laugh. So I then put my hand behind my back and wiggled it and got a round of applause. I thought, this is going well. At which point, Frankie Howard stopped the recording called Jimmy Mulville to the stage and had me sacked. <laughs> oh, 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 wow. Yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I didn't see that coming. No. Wow. This is stunning. No. Oh, get him off. Get him out of here. You stole my joke. Nobody, oh. nobody steals other people's jokes. Get him out. Wow. Audience could hear it and everything. It must have destroyed the recording. Uh, what did it do <laughs> to you? How did it make you feel? I thought, he's a bit moany. 
isn't it? <laughs> I was only concerned about how I was, you know, we were supposed to go out to, to dinner afterwards and Jimmy was, going, <laughs> I was supposed to be staying at Jimmy's place. And I came out and Jimmy said, Can you, you've got to go, Mike. And I went, well, I'll just go backstage. He said, no, go, you've got to leave the building. You've got to go. You won't go on until you're gone. And I went, uh... okay. So I had to go out, walk down into London and thought, mm. and so I walked down to Victoria and got a coach back to Oxford. Wow. Mm. Wow. And yeah. then went home and then went home and learned your law for your finals. It, that's right. Went on the bus learning my case studies. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But I still got my 16 pounds. I got saved 16 oh, well. pounds for doing that. Yeah. <laughs> 16, you, you got paid 16 pounds to be sacked by Frankie by Howard Frankie live Howard, on stage yeah. in front of yeah. an audience. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, that is a heck of a, that is a great piece to go in a film. It's a good that is Maybe incredible. that should be the opening scene. I have to ask before we, before we move to a, to the next question. What was it like to be the voice of a number one hit record? And all these things are very there? strange. They're, I mean, it, it would be because it, it was again, it was in a way part of the whole process of working with Philip Pope, who was the other person who was a, the musical genius of the of the review that we did, and he wrote this song called "Meaningless Songs in Very High Voices," in which that's why he wanted Angus wanted to know whether I could sing in a high voice because we had, we did a, a Bee Gees parody, and from that. We were offered a, a record contract, and it was the thing that brought us to the attention of Jimmy, who then offered us a radio pilot. And so the whole thing sort of one thing creates another. And the fact that I could sing in this high voice meant that I then became part of this group, the heebie-jeebies, and Angus and Phil and I, we toured the world. We, we had hits in Australia, and we went to Australia four times, had a brilliant time. We just had a whale of a time. We did the most ridiculous things, pretending to be pop stars. <laughs> and then that followed on into the fact that Phil was then made musical director of Spitting Image. And then he wrote this song. And, uh, you know, because we sang together all the time, he would give me the work, as it were. He would say, you know, come in. And quite often the singers that you'd have would be top session singers, so people like Lance Ellington and Tessa Niles. Tessa Niles was David Bowie and Eric Clapton's backing singer. Right. Uh, so it was ridiculous. And, and Lance Ellington sings on Strictly Come Dancing still to this day. He's got the most beautiful voice and sang, um, Gillette, the best a man can get. That's his voice. Just a, <laughs> an amazing people. I was lucky to be in the room with them, really. Uh, and they all, they could all read music. I couldn't. I would turn up early and Phil would teach me the part. But and he would then every now and again, they would require somebody to sing not so well. <laughs> that actually sound like a normal person rather than a really good singer. So that's when I would get the part. So if you look at the, the chicken song, that's an example where they wanted someone to not sing it brilliantly. They wanted yeah. it to be, you know, sort of from Manchester and just, you know, it's the time of year now that spring is in the <laughs> like, Not great. And he said, Mike, you do it. And so I did. And there we go. I went on holiday, came back. My answer phone was completely full. No mobile phones or no way of contacting us. And I came back feeling very relaxed and thought, oh, my God, what's happened? And I listened to people saying, brilliant, great news, congratulations. So I thought, what? Phil saying, well, why don't Mike give me a call when he can? And I rang him up. I said, what's going on? He said, we're number one. <laughs> and I said, what with? <laughs> <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. I have to tell you, Mike, like, the chicken song, I can still recite the lyrics, you know, all these years on. Uh, I mean, it was such a, I mean, Earworm doesn't even cover it. 
I mean, it was just it <laughs> yeah, was yeah. such a great parody of of daft pop songs and novelty pop songs. Mm. Um, the fact that it still is lodged in my brain is a testament to to the kind of the quality of the writing and the performance. I would say, yes, that's my brain playing tricks with me. But it's um, it's the writers of Red Dwarf who wrote the lyrics. Well, oh, Naylor and Grant. Yeah. Yeah, is Grant right? and Naylor, yeah. Doug um, Naylor and Hugh Grant, yeah. No, not Hugh Grant. Hugh yeah. Grant. <laughs> He's a talented guy, that Hugh Grant, isn't he? And everybody's forgotten about him. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. <laughs> no, there were the moments that would definitely be in. Are there moments that wouldn't be in Busy Doing Nothing? Are there moments that you'd want on the cutting room floor? Um, I, I can't think of many. As I said, I'm not a person who gets embarrassed by things going wrong. So I wouldn't mm. go, oh, God, that time when I, oh, and I forgot the words, darling, it was terrible. I, those to me are, are, are just as exciting as the times where I didn't forget the words. No, I, I, in fact, they're more memorable. I always think that, that actually, if you're going to go and see theatre, the thing you really want to happen is for it to go wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that makes it absolutely unique. I saw the op- one of the opening or the previews of um, the producers, Nathan Lane in it, and... Uh, was it, was it Matthew Broderick? No, no. This was in, in the West End. Uh, oh, so Nathan was... Lane came over and did it, and so it was Lee Evans. Oh, mm. wow. Wow. And uh, and they came to the, the moment in The Producers where the fella says, you know, uh, and now it's springtime for... And you go, this is the moment we've all been waiting for, and all these people are going to come on in ridiculous dresses and walk down the stairs and everything. Yeah. And he went in, now it's spring to hold it, hold it. Whoop, stop, everyone stop. This person came on, and we all thought, oh, that's a brilliant thing to do. How funny. <laughs> what a great thing to do. We weren't expecting that at all. So he got a round of applause, man. So no, seriously, honestly, please, uh, this is no, we're supposed to have a revolve at this point, and it's stuck. I'm terribly sorry. We're going to try and fix it, but um, bear with us. We oh. oh, so then Nathan Lane came on and started saying, "Hey, nobody expected that. Here we go." So London, anyway, what a what a quaint place this is, and started going. And then Lee Evans came and said, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And they did a routine for about half an hour, and oh. eventually the bloke said, "It's fixed." He went, "Okay, right, we'll go back." Um, and uh, it's springtime, and they went a massive round of applause. Now that was a fantastic night at the theatre. Yeah, so things going wrong is really what you hope for, I think. <laughs> Do you find inspiration in hitches or or tangents? I, I feel that I pride myself on not being thrown by it. I, I, I would be annoyed if something went wrong and I sort of panicked or or didn't know what to do or mm. couldn't fill the gap or keep entertaining people, that sort of thing. I pride myself on the ability to keep things going, as it were. One of the skills there is to not be... a afraid or ashamed of the fact that it's happened. So often mm. people will just be so apologetic and, and so thrown by the fact that this isn't what we rehearsed that they can't cope with it. I worked at the RSC. Whenever they had to do those sort of speeches at the end, you know, we'd have a charity collection or something. So I wasn't playing the lead role, obviously not, in these productions. And I'd never been at the RSC before. And there were very top actors in these, these things. And if ever we were asked to we have to step forward and say, ladies and gentlemen, we're collecting for this and make a little speech. They would say, Mike, um, you, you do that. And I go, yeah, okay. And then I'd step forward and I'd tell a few gags and I'd talk about the, the charity and I'd say that. And then I'd, you know, do a few panto jokes about, you know, so be as generous as you can, you know. I mean, obviously, whatever you can spare, just please, you know, take it out of your pockets, fold it and put it in the bucket. Those sort of pantomime jokes. Mm. And, you know, and of course, the RSC had never seen anything like it. 
<laughs> and I'm very proud to say that one evening I did this speech and uh, Giles Brandreth was in the audience. And then we all rushed to the exits to collect at the to collect the money, which is a much more effective way than just having ushers do it. If you have to get the cast to do it, people are much more generous. So there's right. a, anybody's ever collecting money, that's the way to get lots of money. <laughs> so I was standing there and, and, and Giles Brandreth came by and he said to me, excellent speech, excellent. And I, I've never been so thrilled because I know what a skilled man he is. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and so what do you think would the influences on Busy Doing Nothing be from film or TV or literature or comics? Would there be any influences? I'd like it to be one of those ones where you weren't quite sure what the, the style was. Do you know, I mean, I'd like it to turn <laughs> yeah. into suddenly, I'd like whoever plays me to suddenly turn into Robert Donat and sort of, you know, and somebody shout, what are 39 steps? The 39 <laughs> steps is an organisation of, you know, and, and that sort of thing. You know, I'd like it to jump about in genre style. So yeah. um yeah I think it would be interesting to have to have it turn into rom-com and uh, you know to jump through the styles as it were and then then and, and then suddenly go into a song and oh. have a whole dance routine you've got a number one artist here why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that singing voice in order to yeah. make sure you get, you get a musical number in there yeah yeah it would be fun it would be, I mean, and in a way, it's sort of how I see my life anyway, in my head. You know, I mean, I'm sure we all do this, don't we? We all have a, a little, we've all got films going on in our head. Mm. My life is absolutely me with tunes going away in my head and I'm writing new lyrics to them and making silly jokes and what have you. And I, I direct to the next 10 minutes of my life, you know, I can sort of go, oh, then this could happen and this could happen. That'd be good. <laughs> And I sometimes manoeuvre it. I manoeuvre the world to fit what I quite li would quite like to happen. And it, it does happen, and it's quite nice. You know, you can do that. You can create a situation that nobody expects, and, and it will change what the world is. We can all affect the world. We can change the world, and you can change it a little bit at a time. I, for example, like to answer the announcement on the underground in London when it says on all other lines there is a good service i will then say well that's a, that's a matter of opinion <laughs> we're not looking for opinion here we're looking for information uh, you're giving me a, a qualitative rendition of what the situation is on the underground which is purely your opinion i personally don't think it's a good service uh, what i want is there are delays. That's all I want to know. I don't want to know whether you think that's good or bad. How long do your how long do your journeys on the tube take if you're having an argument with a well? I'm just standing on the platform, you know. And this, ah, right. And uh, sometimes people will look at you as if you're mad, and <laughs> and other times people will go, "You're right, mate. I know. I don't know why they do." And then you're in a conversation with people, and people talk to you about it, and I say it's ridiculous, isn't it? And we talk about the semantics of of whether they have the right to do it. I say it's sort of just some American PR company has come in and said, you need to keep telling people it's a good service, otherwise they won't know. And that's what they're <laughs> doing. That's why they tell us, see it, say it's sorted. And I then when I say, see it, say it's sorted, I think it must be a better one than that. Can't they find the one that rhymes on all three? See <laughs> yeah. it, say it, report it. That's better. See it, report it, caught it. Thought it, report it, caught it. That's got to be better. Yeah, there's the, the, the SF, they've gone for the alliteration, haven't they? They've gone for alliteration something... when they, they didn't have the imagination to do alliteration and rhyming. That would uh, be something really memorable. Yes. And those things, those things slightly annoy me. I do sit there and think, oh, come on, you could have made more of an effort. 
Why do you underestimate our intelligence in that way? And actually, I have seen it, said it, and it wasn't sorted. And that is, I mean, that's a great bit of feedback to give to uh, to to the company. Just as the, mm. just simply simply that on the yeah. online saw form. it, said it, not sorted, not sorted. Yeah, and they, maybe they buck their ideas up. Yeah, we should all just email that in. <laughs> now, what about the critics though what about the critics though mike of 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 busy doing nothing if they love it or hate it how would that affect you and your next project do you even listen to critics does he have uh, you ever listened to critics um do, do you know critics have hardly ever taken any notice of me do you think i must i must give off something where they go he doesn't care <laughs> he doesn't care. He clearly doesn't care. There's no point in us saying something. The only review I ever remember is one of my very, very early reviews where the person said, what Michael Fenton Stevens lacks in talent, he makes up for in gall. <laughs> and I absolutely, I was thrilled. And it was clearly meant as an insult. But I, I, was, I went, wow, imagine that. Actually, that, you don't need talent if you've got that much gall. And it just said, I thought, that's what, surely that's the test of an actor. Do you have the nerve? Yeah. Go on, go on, do it. Try it. You'll never know unless you try it. And that is absolutely the key to, I would say, to any performer. You'll never know until you try it. David Bowie, paint a zigzag on your face. Don't be ridiculous, says Davy Jones. That would look stupid. There you are. That's such an unwitting compliment. Perseverance has been the key to many great careers. Mm. You know, there are plenty of talented people in the world, but there, how many of those people have actually persevered enough to actually bring those talents to the front? And, and you know, and so that's a great compliment. Yes, absolutely. Oh. Don't you think it's the gold? I mean, what an amazing thing to accuse someone of having. <laughs> Jeez, you've got the biggest gall I've ever seen. Thank you so much. The gall of you to stand up there on stage and be an actor. How with could that you? little talent? <laughs> you had the nerve to do it with so little ability. <laughs> great news, great news, Michael. Yes. Busy doing nothing has reached the cinema. It's in the can. It's mm. premiere night. Where's the premiere uh, taking place and who's invited? Uh, well, do you know, I've, to be actually to be serious for a moment, I am the honorary president of a children's theatre group in Soham, which was set up by uh, the most extraordinary young man who's not so young anymore because he's been doing it for over 20 years. But he, as a teenager, decided that that town, having been through what it had been through, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, if you remember so um, for anything, you remember it for that. Uh, but we won't dwell on that because he said young people here need to get together and need to start doing something. So he started a theatre group to put on musicals, basically, to put on shows and invited anybody to come no, nobody would be turned away. Anybody's allowed to join in. Everybody will be given something to do. If you want to do it, you're in. He's been doing it for 22 years. They've just amazingly managed to raise the money and have their own theatre built in Soham. Wow. They bought a disused mill and have converted it into a theatre. They've had something like 30,000 children go through this group. Wow. Affecting the economy of the area, affecting the nature of the area. I spoke to the headmaster of the local school and said that bullying is almost a thing that, that has disappeared from his school because all these children, they know each other through the years and they, they look out for each other and they won't put up with it. So if somebody wow. starts something, they say, hey, no, we don't do that. I know this kid. They look after each other. It's amazing. I've seen children... The aim is not to create professional actors. And yet, amazingly, 
uh, I found out just the other day because we had the opening ceremony for the theater and Prince Edward, God bless him, came along and, um, you know, and opened it and was very charming and very lovely and, and gave them a lot of time. So we were very grateful. And it's very important to have people like that come and do those things for you, despite what I've said about his brother. You know, <laughs> anyway, uh, it was it was amazing. But he t he said that even though the aim of this thing is not to create actors, not to feed the, the world of acting, and it's not a drama school for young people, it's just a club. And they put on shows for the fun of it. And yet there's not a show, not a musical in the West End at the moment that doesn't have somebody from Viva, which is the name of the, the theatre group, involved in it. It's amazing. That's incredible. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And this is a little town, not a wealthy town, in the middle of nowhere, really, you know, sort of stuck away. It's not a town that people would notice. You don't go into it unless you, you're going to it. Mm. And it's just full of the most beautiful people, delightful, incredibly talented people, and really hardworking, dedicated people who've given hours and hours of their time to these children. And these children have all grown up to be, as a result of being shown that thing of have some gall, get on mm -hmm. stage, don't be frightened. You can do things if you just let yourself. They've gone on to do amazing things. They've gone on to be much more successful than they would have been. I've seen little nervous children go in there and walk out at 18, full of confidence, ready to take on the world. And it's, it's a brilliant thing. And I, I just wish they had the same thing in every town that every child could be involved in, because it's, it's so rewarding to be involved in it. And it's so brilliant to see it. And we don't give the arts enough credit, I don't mm. think, for what they can do for people and what they do for society, for mm. community. And for individuals, so it's um, I, I'm, that's where that's where we had the premiere. They're, they're, it's a Viva Community Theatre. They're they're amazing. The man who Dan Schumann, who who set it up and runs it, is an extraordinary man. And uh, if anybody, and I'm thinking of people who don't deserve this, like Boris Johnson's dad, uh, if anybody deserves a knighthood, it's him. Hmm. It feels churlish to ask after that brilliant story. Is there anyone not invited to the premiere? Why would that be? I mean, would, would there anyone you wouldn't want to be there? Well, it's a very small, it's not a large theatre, so it would have to be an exclusive crowd. Yes, <laughs> it would have to be. Um, my wife's not invited. because <laughs> As we record on the day of your 42nd wedding anniversary. She was there anyway, and she's sick to death of me talking about my life. So the idea <laughs> of making her sit through a film of it would be <laughs> would be just so cruel. I couldn't do it to her. <laughs> I know, I, she's excused. She can go, go somewhere else, she can read a book. <laughs> well, there we have it. Busy Doing Nothing, featuring uh, Dustbusters, David Tennant's career advice, Tony Slattery, mm. South London villains, burying Ethel in EastEnders, being <laughs> murdered in Steve Coogan's house, fitting in 33 university plays while studying for a law degree, and a Giles Brandreth compliment. Michael Fenton-Stevens, congratulations on being Greenlist. Thank you very much. I, I, I just... It's great to be involved in such a smash hit. <laughs>